0: Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you're a regular listener of this podcast and you like what we do, you find it informative, maybe even find it entertaining, please consider becoming a supporter. We can use your help. So to support the podcast, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or to uranot.org and find the Patreon button and become a monthly patron. Okay, back to now that the religious series is over, we can move on to other topics and themes. And, you know, I don't usually do episodes based on current events. I just don't have the capacity to chase headlines as as much as I may want to. But over the last month, I've wanted to do an interview about the Azeri military's cleansing of Armenias from Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, this happened in late September. It's been a month. And my reasons for wanting to do an interview are really twofold. First, call me naive. And I think my guests would agree. That I was surprised that the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh's cleansing the Azeri military's blockade of the region, which started way back in December of 2022, didn't really get as much attention in the media as I assumed it would. Considering all the focus on the region because of the war in Ukraine, I thought another tragedy in the region would garner at least some attention for a bit. But uh, Nagorno-Karabakh came and went from the headlines rather quickly. And my second reason is that, frankly, I just don't know that much about the issue beyond the broad strokes. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know the regional complexities, the tensions between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and the larger geopolitical relations and implications of the cleansing of Armenians from the nagorno Karabakh. So then I read an article by a friend of mine named Rafael Kachachurian that he wrote with Richard Antaramian. Uh, in the Jacobin titled, Azerbaijan's Ethnic Cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh is Fueled by Regional Power Struggles. So I decided to talk to them about what happened to Nagorno-Karabakh and the wider context around it. Rafael Khachichurian is a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and associate faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. He is the co-editor of the forthcoming Marxism and the Capitalist State, Towards a New Debate. His trip to Armenia this past summer was funded by the Kaluz Golbenkian Foundation. And Richard Antaramian is an associate professor of history at the University of Southern California, and together they wrote Azerbaijan's ethnic cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh is fueled by regional power struggles in the Jacobin. Here's Raphael Hachaturian and Richard Antaramian. <laughs> So it's it's good to talk to you both. I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks, of course since the news broke about the cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh that I wanted to do some kind of interview about it, especially since and this is something we'll talk about in a bit, the news attention to what has happened in Armenian Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh has not received the attention that it deserves and certainly not the attention close to other conflicts that are occurring right now around the world. So just to start off Raphael um You're a political theorist, right? You write a lot about political and social theory. And Richard, you're a historian working on the Ottomans, Ottoman Empire. So I'm curious, you both co-authored this article in the Jacobin titled, Azerbaijan's Ethnic Cleansing of Nagorno-Karabakh is Fueled by Regional Power Struggles. And I'm curious, considering that present-day Armenian politics and the politics of the region aren't your main ballywicks, what inspired you to write this article?
1: Sean, thank you for having us both here and thank you for reading the piece. It's a really great question to get us started because I feel like in some ways being Armenian actually compels one to be to some degree involved and to pay attention to what is going on no matter how much one might try to resist it. And as far as I remember, going back to some of the conversations that Richard and I initially began having was a few years ago, going back to the 2020 war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I think that that's actually how we first connected was through both following these events on social media and at that time, both having serious questions about what that war was going to mean for Armenian statehood, Armenian politics moving forward, and also in many ways, how that conflict actually mapped onto certain existing Rivalries and tensions within Eurasia and, and within the Caucasus specifically. I think we were driven to write this particular piece having spent the next three years talking about what was going on and watching all these series of events unfold and being really dissatisfied with the way that what was happening was being covered. On the one hand, to the extent that mainstream analyses even covered the conflict, there was a kind of both sidesism to the issue that I think actually glossed over a lot of more interesting questions about what was happening within each respective society. And to the extent that Richard and I observed some of the more influential voices coming out of Armenian social media and Armenian media that were covering the event, in many ways we were dissatisfied with the way that they were articulating certain, let's just call it what it is, nationalist positions on Armenian statehood, on greater Armenia, which we felt were becoming increasingly detached from the actual socio-political reality. So that is why we decided to make this intervention in the first place.
0: Richard, do you have anything to add?
2: Yeah, I would just develop some of the points that Rafael was making. Yes, there's general dissatisfaction with how this is being discussed in Armenian circles especially, not just Armenian community circles, not just Armenian media, but also among Armenian Studies Scholarship. Armenian Studies Scholarship has been really at the margins of the mainstream of, of academia for a very long time. It has failed to engage larger debates in academic circles more generally. Speaking as an historian, it's really failed to utilize or benefit from the interventions made in the discipline of history over the last 50, 60 years. Armenian discourse has been largely underdeveloped, and it's been really tainted by, as Raphael mentioned, this pernicious strain of nationalism. It's a strain of nationalism that even when it does engage with larger bodies of scholarship, quickly appropriates the form of those Discussions to launder a nationalist content. So, when it comes to this discussion in particular, we suddenly hear both scholars and really right wing lobbyists in the United States and elsewhere using the language of indigeneity and post colonialism. But it's really just to present, to, to maintain this lacrimose narrative about Armenian history that, you know, we'll be us. We are surrounded by enemies. And this becomes a way of not engaging in any type of self reflection, not thinking critically about what Armenians have done, not thinking about. the mistakes Armenians have made, uh, and really denying Armenians any agency whatsoever. So there's that general frustration that has been a feature of, I I think, with both of us, privately, with family, with friends, publicly, with the media, and then professionally with other academics, to see these themes repeated again and again. And I think both of us are pretty committed in those three phases of life, professional, public and private, to combating this unfortunate feature of, of Armenian discourse. Can you give a, a more concrete example
0: of what the nationalist narrative is?
2: It's difficult, of course, to say strictly what an Armenian nationalist perspective is because we're dealing with these global communities. We're dealing with this kind of a multi-layered, multi-generational diaspora. We're dealing with an independent republic. But generally speaking, I think all Armenians link the Karabakh issue to the Armenian genocide of 1915 and World War I more generally. And they then situate that in a larger story of Turkic oppression. The story being that these Turks, uh, and Armenians referred to both Osries and the Turks of Turkey as simply Turks uh, as Turk. These people came from Central Asia. They are the Mongol hordes. They came, they displaced us, they took our lands. But they then killed us all. and those of us that they didn't kill, they deported and evicted from our lands. The sad reality is, there's a lot of truth to that. Of course, it glosses over a great deal of things. It allows them to then view Turks as this fixed other as uh, immutably different from others, and it also allows them to see Armenians simply as victims and as nothing else. So the war in Nagorno-Karabakh and the ethnic cleansing that has happened subsequently is all just mapped onto that narrative, right? It's one in which Armenians bear no responsibility for anything whatsoever. It's one in which Armenians have not committed any wrongs because they have simply been victims and nothing else. Anything to add, Rafael? I would also add the way that some of these questions are then kind of mapped onto the way the
1: Armenian diaspora presents itself to the West, the way that buys into a certain framing of, let's say, Christian slash Muslim animus that has long-term historical linkages, which then presents Armenia in a way as kind of the natural partner, let's say, of the West when it comes to geopolitics. So there there's that kind of connection, which then also feeds back into very simplistic Western narratives, of course, about what the conflict of the Caucasus is also about, similarly to the way that, let's say, the conflict in the Balkans was narrated during the 1990s. So I would add that there's a kind of double layer, almost, of the way that narrative is constructed, both as a process of nation-making for the Armenian nation itself and in the way that it constructs certain frameworks, certain narratives, but also an externally facing one That tries to, for various geopolitical reasons, tries to use that way to to bridge towards favorable relations with the United States and Europe.
0: Both of you actually were in Armenia this summer. And given what you've said about the nationalist narrative and how the diaspora, in part, sees this conflict and tries to frame itself, what are some of the observations that you had, Rafael, in Armenia that either coincides with this nationalist narrative you, you both have told us about, but maybe even alternative views of different political forces on how they understand Nagorno-Karabakh and wider Armenian politics.
1: Yeah. So this was actually my first time in Armenia. Richard and I had been talking for a couple of years about going to to teach at the American University of Armenia in Yerevan. And this past summer we were able to finally put that together and go. And it's a really interesting question that I've been trying to kind of think through for myself as well, I have another piece that's in the pipeline that is a, you could say, more personal, but also situated reflection on what identity and national identity can mean in, in today's world coming out of this post-Soviet context. But I was struck by many things, one of them, of course, being the way that there's a kind of existential sense of dread, in the sense, about the cost and looming threat of war manifesting itself. And I feel like many of the people that I spoke to and things that I observed reflect that, especially since 2020. At the same time though, what's remarkable in that context is actually that people are still going about their normal lives. If you go out at the let's say at nine o'clock in the evening, ten o'clock in the evening in the summer, all the restaurants and the cafes are packed. There's just a ton of people living the nightlife. You don't get the sense that there's actually that Carelessness, But nevertheless, it's still it's almost like it's always looming there in the background that people are acting and living their lives almost in spite of it. So I think I could say a little bit more about nationalism and national self-identity in that regard. But I would say that thing was one of the most striking elements of it for me.
0: Is the government effective in mobilizing the population for them to be in tune with this, or does the everyday life going about their lives act as a way to, you know, is difficult to penetrate in a way?
1: From what I've observed and seen and read since then, the government is actually not really trying to use Karabakh to mobilize the population in any way. I think actually many Armenians are skeptical, if not hostile, of the current Pashinyan government and the way that they are that they've handled the last three years. But at the same time, there's also a sense that there's a lack of viable alternatives in the sense that right now it's been framed as a choice of Pashinyan versus the return of the oligarchs that were in power for the previous 20 years. So it's a very kind of difficult position. And I would say that there isn't necessarily resignation, but there is a deep-seated skepticism
2: about the political prospects moving forward.
0: Richard, what are some of your uh, takeaways from from being in Armenia multiple times, of course?
2: Much of what Raphael said, I agree with that if you are in Yerevan, for the most part, you're going to see the packed cafes, you're going to see consumption, uh, you're going to see nightlife, you're going to see what looks like pretty normal life. And really, if you go throughout the rest of the country, I think a lot of that holds as well. People are going about their days people are going to work. It's a poor country, so people have to work long hours and that daily grind occupies the bulk of your life. But as you go further out a bit, the evidence becomes much more apparent and the, the war weariness becomes more palpable. So when you drive outside of Yerevan, you get onto, not necessarily of the main highways, but if you go to some of these smaller places or you go a little bit out of the way, you'll start to see immediately military recruitment signs on the side of the streets, very clearly targeting poor communities, offering them military career as a chance for upper mobility. Right? It's a lot like the National Guard going into a, a black and brown high school in the U.S. But as you're going by on these highways, uh, you'll see the cemeteries, and the cemeteries have these massive headstones for the souls, for the boys, these 17, 18, 19-year-old boys who fell, massive gravestones in their honors. So that impression is indelible. like It's been marked on the landscape and now on the geography of the country as well. Uh, As you start talking to more working-class people, so even if you go into the working-class districts of Yerevan, you're going to find a bit more enthusiasm about the Pashinyan government than I expected. To Raphael's point, there's people just know that if Pashinyan goes away, the only alternative is the return of the oligarchs. And people hate them more than they hate Pashinyan. And that's really what's keeping Pashinyan in power right now. With respect to the war weariness, again, that is It's pretty apparent, and you do see a lot of people who want peace. I noticed these last couple summers I've been in Yerevan versus the past, fathers are much more demonstrative in terms of expressing affection towards sons than I had ever seen beforehand. Beforehand, it was, I don't want to say cold. There's obviously this love that's there, but it's more unspoken, but it's much more apparent now. And it seems like people want to make clear that they value their sons more than they had previously. And that comes through sometimes when you're talking to people and they say, we just want peace. They want Garabakh, they want security, they want all of that, but they want their sons more than they want heroes. And that's an impression that is inescapable if you spend time in the working class communities of Yerevan and if you go out into the villages and talk to people, because these are the people who sent disproportionately their sons to the front lines. Yeah, I
0: was going to ask about this class dynamic, because on the one hand, based on what both of you have said, the people who actually go into the military and go and fight in in any conflict that flares up are the working class, the poor, just like in a lot of countries around the world, including this one. It's the poor echelons of society, levels of society that tend to serve in the military and fight. Do you get then this strange phenomenon where the intelligentsia and the elite are more gun ho about the conflict than the people who actually have to pay the costs for it? Either of you can answer to that. And I'm curious about the class dynamics and the various views towards this.
2: So, if you were to take the classic social breakdown of uh, Soviet and post Soviet society, where we have, broadly speaking, the, the intelligentsia, and then we have the nomenklatura, and then we have the proletariat, in Armenia, historically, there has been a closer link between the intelligentsia and the proletariat than in most places. And I think a lot of that proves true even today. Now, to be sure, what constitutes the intelligentsia has changed considerably over the last 30 years. When the Soviet Union was falling apart, the independence movement in m- most of these countries, in Armenia especially, was led by the intelligentsia. So you're not hearing, uh, again, this intelligentsia has been flooded by a number of different uh, nationalists, uh, a number of different reactionaries over the last 30 years. Funding of Armenian higher education has, of course, plummeted like it has everywhere in the world, but especially you know in a poor country. So you now have a lot of sycophants and others who are quickly rising the ranks of the higher education administration. But still, you don't really hear too many of them beating war drums or calling for renewed hostilities. Certainly there are some, but they're not very audible in the grand scheme of things. So I do think that relationship between the intelligentsia and the the proletariat has proved quite resilient. And I think that manifests in their joint support for Pashinyan still. Because they remain both vehemently opposed to the restoration of the oligarchy. I would just add to to Richard's point that thinking about
1: Pashinyan and sort of, I've been trying to think a little bit about the social base of Pashinyan and the Civil Contract Party, and it's not only the intelligentsia and the proletariat, people in working class areas and rural areas, but it's also, I guess, what you would call the segments of the white collar, sort of middle class or PMC to the extent that we can use that term given all of its problems. But I do think that there is a significant kind of strata of the population that see in Pashinyan, or at least had hoped to see in him a step away from the kind of oligarchic 20 years and the ability to link up our media to greater regional interconnectivity and even a kind of a global interconnectivity. that initially kind of spurred those hopes that that party would promote greater democratization, would prevent the return of the oligarchs. So there is also a kind of, I guess you could say, a professionalized working class that is primarily grounded in Yerevan that um, are are also, I think, backing the the party, even though the party itself is actually what we would call a, you could probably reasonably call a very hollowed out party that doesn't actually stand for much, ideologically speaking.
2: If I may put on my historian's hat for a minute, To give some context to people who aren't familiar with Armenian politics, in in 2018 Yerevan was gripped by a series of street protests. These then spread to other parts of the country, and they were, at the end of the day, led by Nikol Pashinyan, who was a longtime oppositionist journalist. He had spent time in jail after the 2008 demonstrations were put down violently by the ruling authorities. So this 2018 movement was later called the Velvet Revolution. So it's this movement, and as Raphael said, it, it it tings together the parts of the intelligentsia. It brings together a large swath of the proletariat. In fact, when I was watching the demonstrations and watching everything unfold, there were a couple of different moments where I knew it was going to be successful. The first was when Hashinyan was taken into custody in the midst of all of this, and his people announced that we're still going to gather at the main square in Yerevan, Republic Square, at a particular time. And I said, all right, if they actually come out in mass, it's over. It's over because Ser Sarkisyan, the, the third president of Armenia after Robert Kocharyan, the two kind of oligarchic presidents who both have their roots in Gharabakh, which is something we should probably discuss in a few moments, and these exemplars of the, of the nomenklatura class, I said, if these people come out, it's done because Sarkisyan, unlike Kocharyan, will not use violence against the people. Sarkisian always saw himself as more of a, a paternal figure, whereas Kocharian saw himself as a patriarchal figure. So, Kocharian was not averse to using violence as we saw in 2008. Uh, Sarkisian would not go that route. The second, so w- once they came out, I'm like, it's done because Sarkisian's not going to go to the lengths he needs to maintain power. A second part where I knew it was for real was the day after that, there were a number of wildcat strikes that broke out across Yerevan in the working class districts, Malatya, Sepastia, these other places, and in um, industrial towns like Apovian. These wildcat strikes just happened. And again, at that point, you knew that they not only ran the streets in Yerevan, they ran the streets everywhere, and that it was done. So we had this massive so-called revolution that happened. And this movement did, in fact, have revolutionary potential. The issue, however, is that Pashinyan proved himself in the succeeding months, years, to be, as a young analyst in Yerevan, Sonobaldrian Baldrian, recently wrote in an article for Left East, center-right and neoliberal. They quickly instituted a flat tax rate. They really played up the tech sector, this burgeoning tech sector, and using that, as Raphael was mentioning, as this kind of counterweight within their coalition to neutralize some of the more left-wing elements of the party. Washington also had to utilize, now coming back to your question about Gharabakh, how the government uses Garabakh or uses that to mobilize the population or engage in politics, it's much less visible after 2020, but before the war, it was pretty obvious what they were doing. Because they came in with this you know, kind of vanguard street movement, color revolutionary, etc. In post-Soviet space, this you know rings a lot of alarm bells for some people. So they felt a need to not be seen as of you know, you know, the Soros group. They then had to try and outflank people to their right. So you had Pashinyan taking what I believe is an unprecedented step for an Armenian leader of actually going to Garabakh on an official capacity, conducting a rally in Stepanag, in the main square in Stepanagert, where he declared to everyone, Artsakh, the Armenian word for Garabakh, is Armenia and that's it basically at that point saying, there will be no negotiations. We will control this land forever as we have. We've lived here for 3,000 years. We will be here forever. No one will ever change that. And in the process really probably detonated the negotiation process. But he did so because he felt that in order to retain his bona fides in the Armenian uh, political space, he needed to outflank the oligarchs to the right on some issue and that this was it.
0: Let's go into this conflict and, and how you, you talk about it in your Jacobin article. You place the beginnings of this conflict, right? If you go by the nationalist narrative, like a lot of nationalist narratives, they're incredibly primordial, right? This conflict is from the beginning of time. Ever since we existed, we've been persecuted and et cetera, et cetera. We know how these things go. But in your article, you both place the a conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Karabakh in Soviet nationality policy beginning in the 1920s. Rafael, why start there? We really wanted to
1: emphasize this point precisely for the reason that you stated, is that we want to push back against primordialist narratives about indigeneity, about narratives where people have been in that particular region since time immemorial. And this is kind of part of a single linear narrative that can be traced up through classical antiquity and even beyond. And actually, we really want to emphasize, as both of us who are scholars who have a very strong interest in. Late 19th and early 20th century nation and state making and the history of the Soviet Union, that the Soviet Union really was a kind of unique social formation in the sense that it promoted nationalities and the construction of nationhood within the content of a socialist politics. So the saying was that these were republics that emerged that were national in form, but socialist in content. The reason for why that needs to really be explored is that The Caucasus is, of course, one of the most ethnically and religiously and linguistically diverse regions in the world. And the Bolsheviks, I think, had a number of reasons for why they first kind of allocated Nagorno-Karabakh, which was a region that was 95% ethnically Armenian, to Azerbaijan rather than to Armenia. And of course, there's also a period between the 1920s and 1936 when Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan actually existed Mm -hmm. as a single Transcaucasian federation. So there's more to that history there as well. The Bolsheviks essentially decided to, you know, driven and mobilized by a certain ideology, I guess you could say, of modernization. They expected that national identity formation would then help push so-called traditional peoples through these stages of development more rapidly towards socialism and then communism. And by linking Nagorno-Karabakh, which was traditionally a rural region. And as as Richard likes to point out, it was one of the centers where Armenian quasi feudal practices persisted even in, in, into the modern period. The Bolsheviks had decided that if, if we were to link it to Azerbaijan and Baku, which was, of course, the economic powerhouse of the Caucasus at the time and was itself 20% Armenian, including the pre-revolutionary kind of the, the operationalize of industry and finance were, were Armenian they hoped then to kind of spur this process of development that would then proletarianize the region as a whole. So at the same time, I think there was also the expectation that gradually nationalist sentiment would erode as the people of different ethnicities cohabitated with each other within this kind of socialist political framework. And gradually that traditional family and clan ties would break up. So there was a, a kind of ideological component, you could say, of proletarian internationalism that connected to an ideology of modernization and developmentalism that I think affected some of the Bolshevik calculus of that period. Probably in addition to the idea that if you were to divide certain ethnicities across borders, even within that framework, they would probably would also be more easy to govern and it would actually prevent kind of the formation of counter revolutionary nationalist movements that The Bolsheviks were having such a difficult time crushing in 1919 up through 1922
0: or so. Yeah, you know, Richard, the thing about this Bolshevik modernization, using promoting nationalism on the one hand, but squashing nationalist movements on the other with Armenia, you also have a population that experienced the genocide who lived through a genocide a mere decade before. And that genocide, of course, committed by Turks, by Turkey. And as you said earlier in the beginning that um, Armenians conflate Azeris with Turks. So in the context that Raphael just talked about with the nationality policy, what role did the lingering effects of the genocide figure into this, if at all?
2: It's difficult to give a a direct answer. So the Armenian Republic that comes into being in 1918 1920 which is later sovietized from one perspective one could say that sovietization was mercy because you have a country that is flooded with refugees, flooded with survivors, flooded with broken families. Disease and famine are widespread. And oh, by the way, it's fighting with three of its neighbors. It's engaged in wars with Azerbaijan over these questions of Nachetchevon and uh, Karabakh. It's fighting with Georgia over what are the northern provinces of Armenia and the southern provinces of Georgia. And it's fighting with an invasion by the Ottomans and later than also by the, the Atatürk and the Turkish nationalists. To describe the state of affairs as precarious would be a a gross understatement. So when Sovietization actually happens, it, it ends the war, right? It brings that peace that even people today are asking for. After that, it's difficult to say that genocide really features prominently in, I mean, it's there, but it's unspoken. And is it difficult to say that this is playing any kind of role politically, et cetera, in terms of dictating how things unfold, how things operate, et cetera. The only thing we can really point to politically is that because you have Broken society, it's probably easier for the Soviets to build it in a Soviet idiom than it would have been in other places. That the social roots, the social structures that have been in place beforehand that would have a counter revolutionary tint simply don't exist in the same way that they would have other places. And to Raphael's point, and the one that I like to make as much as I possibly can, the dying embers of Armenian kingdoms, of Armenian feudalism, exists into the 20th century, into the 19th and 20th centuries in two places. One is in Cilicia and the Ottoman Empire. The other is in Artsakh or Karabakh, where you had these things. And so this probably factors in greatly, I think, into the Soviets' decision, although we don't see it reflected in the documents that we have available to us. But it has to figure somehow into their decision to incorporate Karabakh into the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic, simply because if there was any Armenian political force that you needed to dilute, it would have been that. But with respect to the genocide, we really don't see it emerge in Armenian public discourse until the 1960s with the 50th anniversary commemorations in 1965. These are aided by a couple of different things. So again, if Armenia is basically in ruins as of 1920, 1921, that's probably the state of affairs for the bulk of the Soviet Union after the Second World War, and Armenia suffered Almost as much as any other Soviet Socialist Republic in terms of people lost. So, one of the things that the Soviet Union does in the wake of this tragic loss of life is they go to Armenian diaspora communities and they try to encourage people to, you know, repatriate. And listeners can't see, but I have very visible air quotes that I'm still using because these people are not repatriating to a home of theirs. They're not repatriating to a land where their dialect of Armenian is spoken, where their versions of Armenian cuisine are cooked. They're coming to an essentially foreign land. And the only thing that really links them is an abstract sense of being Armenian. So a lot of these people who are coming are themselves genocide survivors. They are the children of genocide survivors. And they bring with them a collective memory that has been preserved in diaspora communities, which they're then bringing and then connecting with, again, this kind of silent, unspoken collective memory that's been in the elephant in the room of the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic now for 30, 40, 50 years. So they bring that with them. And then suddenly the genocide becomes uh, an issue that it hadn't been beforehand. Again, around 1965 is when we have of these massive demonstrations in Yerevan, uh, demanding that the Soviet authorities do something about it whether that be just constructing a memorial, whether it be commemorating it otherwise, whether it be making demands on Turkey. But it enters into the Armenian public sphere only in the 1960s. But this does operate, I think, at the foundations of a lot of the subsequent public discourse that we have in the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic and in Karabakh as well. Therefore, would eventually then, when we get into the 1980s, kind of connect with what we see happening in Karabakh.
0: Let's get into the conflict as it's unfolded first since December and, of course, over the last month. So what has happened in Nagorno-Karabakh in the last, say, since December and then in the last month? I guess
1: I can start. As we pointed out in our piece, and we were writing this piece in the midst of all of these events happening, when we first began writing it, essentially Nagorno-Karabakh was under siege by Azeri forces. So there had been a a blockade that had been imposed since December of last year. And prior to then, of course, you had the 2020 war in which Azerbaijan took all of the surrounding territory that the Armenians had essentially established after 1994 as a kind of buffer zone around Nagorno-Karabakh After 2020, those parts that were not forcefully taken by Azerbaijan militarily were basically transferred over by the end of that year to Azeri control, which meant that Nagorno-Karabakh, and Armenian region called Artsakh, essentially existed as surrounded by by Azeri territory again, and with one uh, piece of land called the Lachid Corridor connecting it to Armenia proper, which was to be monitored by Russian peacekeepers along with other parts of Artsakh itself. Over the past month, at some point, there must have been a political decision made by the Aliyev regime that they no longer had really any reason or any incentive for prolonging negotiations or for essentially waiting this conflict out any longer. I think for a number of reasons that we can discuss, they saw that this was their moment to actually now take over nagorno karabakh or Artsakh, to go into Stepanakert, which is the capital of that area, and essentially to kind of end Armenian political rule there, or that had existed in this semi-sovereign, you could say, form since 1994. As we were writing this piece, that was already in the process of happening. But what really became immediately apparent was that there was also going to be a massive outflux of refugees from the area. Essentially, we call this ethnic cleansing in the piece because what has happened is that people were essentially coerced to leave their homes because there was no politically viable reason for them to actually remain under Azeri rule and Azeri governance moving forward, given the degree of um, mutual animosity and hostility, the degree of mistrust and distrust between them, given the very threatening things that the Aliyev regime has said about Armenians in the three years prior and even before then.
0: How many people are we talking about in Karabakh?
1: The upper level of estimate of the Armenian population in Karabakh was about 120,000. The last kind of numbers I've heard is that Pretty much everybody has already left at this point to southern Armenia. There may be a couple of hundred people still there, primarily the elderly, the sick, who have been unable to leave for whatever reason.
2: The most recent number I heard was about 12 12 people total remaining. And to Raphael's point, these are elderly people. From what I'd heard, a couple of different places, these are people tending graves. These are just elderly people who just aren't gonna go anywhere, they're infirm. And in a couple of cases, they're ethnic Russians who are just sticking out and probably hanging out with the peacekeepers, it seems. Now, I think it's also, I think, worth our while to take a step back and ask why did Azerbaijan perceive this to be the time to attack and to drive this point and to kind of, you know, from their perspective, put an end to the Karabakh question. The obvious thing is that since 2020, when the war happened, I mean, the war... The war happened in, in 2020 for a variety of reasons. One of the those that has gained a lot of traction and which I haven't seen an adequate counter to is that Azerbaijan perceived, quite probably correctly, that the gulf between Armenia and Azerbaijan would never be wider. Azerbaijan has declining oil production, it is an authoritarian regime, so it has consciously avoided diversifying the economy in order to preclude establishing competing centers of power within the economy and therefore politically. So as its oil reserves begin to dwindle and and as the Aliyev regime bases of support begin to wither as well, they needed to make good on this promise to punish the Armenians. This uh, kind of really grotesque anti-Armenian sentiment has been the one thing that the Aliyev regime has been able to consistently mobilize to legitimize itself within the arena of Azerbaijani politics. It has, for the last decade at least, if not longer, had a military budget that has outstripped Armenia's national budget and in recent years also. So there had been a flare-up of tensions in 2016 when it appears Azerbaijan tried to launch the kind of offensive that it did successfully in 2020. It was an an aborted attempt and a catastrophe, if anything. What became clear then is that they were going to be using drones, and they started importing in large numbers drones from Turkey and from Israel. The Armenians, because you had an oligarch regime that thought that it didn't have to do anything, that just believed that its military prowess was all it needed. Bear in mind too that the second and third presidents of of Armenia were veterans of the Karabakh War. And they also felt that you know through their persona alone that this was sufficient to provide security to Armenia. And more practically, they had basically sold out Armenia's economy to Russia in exchange for security guarantees. But what Azerbaijan perceived in 2020 is that, one, as I said, the Gulf is now greater than it's ever been. They have these drones that they can use to knock out entrenched Armenian positions, right, because they proved unable to do so in 2016 with more conventional methods. So they attacked, and in 44 days, they won this sweeping victory. Now, since then, of course, Russia has tried to continue to maintain the the balance of power between Armenia and Azerbaijan. It had been the primary weapons dealer for both of them. It had untold influence in both countries in terms of economics. Russia simply being there really does resolve a lot of the social tensions in both countries uh, simply because Russia becomes a place to which uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijan are sending untold numbers of labor migrants who are then able to send remittances back to their homes. And that basically supplements shortfalls in the budget, the inability of either Armenia, the unwillingness more so of Azerbaijan, the inability of Armenia to provide basic services, this is covered by these remittances in in large number and in in many respects. So Azerbaijan has, since 2020, tried to tilt the balance of power, but for the first year or so was cautious, didn't want to provoke Russia, didn't want to didn't really try much. It made a couple of small incursions into Armenia in order to expedite the border delimitation process, which is now underway, right? We didn't have this border delimitation beforehand because of the war and the fact that the Armenians had occupied these territories outside of Garabakh, expelled the local population so they could create what was for them a so-called security belt. So now Azerbaijan is trying to force the issue, makes these small incursions into Armenia in, in different times in 2021 and 2022. But as I said, for the most part, being very cautious. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, however, has proven an obvious disaster for Russia. But it has led to Russia's ability to influence the region has waned considerably as a result. Due in part to sanctions, due in part to any number of other things, Russia's ability to pull the levers in the Caucasus is really, is not what it was beforehand. And what Russia has now come to understand is that because Azerbaijan has unfettered support from Turkey, unqualified support from Turkey, Turkey now calls a lot of the shots within Azerbaijan. It bears remembering that the Aliyev regime, even though the elder Aliyev, uh, Haider Aliyev, was a former premier of the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic, he had been kicked out in the 80s along with a lot of these other major Soviet figures in the Caucasus. Uh, had been removed from power. And it's really when these guys get removed from power, Demirjan Aliyev, that we do start to see an increase in the visible nationalism in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. But the Aliyev, Haider Aliyev comes back to power in Azerbaijan in 1993 with the support not of Russia, but of Turkey. Right. It's Turkish intelligence that helps puts him on, on the proverbial throne that conducts the coronation and helps him beat back any challengers, including a Russian-backed colonel. So the Aliyevs have had warm relations with Turkey, but with the retreat of Russia from the region by virtue of sanctions and the failed war in, in Ukraine... Turkey has really stepped into the Caucasus in a way that it hadn't beforehand. So now Russia is in a position where it has to try and figure out what it wants to do. And the one, one of the chips that it had to play was Karabakh, And it simply, it, it appears, decided to give Karabakh to Azerbaijan. Based on what we've heard from both Azeris and Russians, it appears that there was coordination between the peacekeepers and the azeris in terms of preparing this last offensive that ended the Armenian presence in Karabakh. And it appears that Russia is now simply trying to get, it, it sold Karabakh in order to buy a place on the ground floor of the new turkish azeri partnership in the Caucasus, which it appears is going to be the regional player for at least the medium term. So what about
0: the other geopolitical players in this? So we have Turkey, we have Russia. What role are Western nations? Because I've been seeing on social media things about Western lobbyists and or lobbyists in in the West, Azeri lobbyists mostly. The oil issue of Baku, of course. How does this play out geopolitically?
2: So
1: this is a a conflict in which I think a lot of different parties have their hand in, but there's no clear one party that's calling the shots. In terms of the West, I think we have to disentangle, of course, Europe and the European Union from the United States, first of all. So in terms of the European Union, last summer, the European Union signed an agreement with Ilham Aliyev, president of Azerbaijan, in order for Azerbaijan to now begin to supply a greater amount of natural gas to Europe. This is one of the fallouts of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the way that the search for energy is now directing European Powers uh, European countries to other various sources. Azerbaijan still supplies a very, very small portion of natural gas and oil to the EU, but the infrastructure is there, at least in theory, for it to begin supplying a greater amount. The oil and gas pipelines essentially come out of Baku, circumvent Armenia for very clear political and historical reasons, travel through Georgia and then into Turkey. So it's the kind of Baku to BBC. Anatolia pipeline and then into the Mediterranean, so European powers have a certain reason for why they're not going to i think impose particular sanctions or any kind of extraneous penalties on Azerbaijan. I think the question of the United States is a little different because the u s doesn't really have i think as immediate of, a, of an energy interest in the region, but the u s does supply weapons to azerbaijan and essentially since i think roughly about 2001 or 2002 there's been a kind of pattern where almost annually there's been a kind of waiver of a certain provision that would prevent the united states from supplying weapons to countries where there's a kind of ongoing conflict but in certain cases there are exceptions of which azerbaijan has been previously waived there's some talk i think in american diplomatic circles of actually so so that was not extended this year and i think that there's some talk now of potentially not extending that waiver so long as Azerbaijan takes that hostile position towards Armenia and continues to threaten a regional conflict, a broader regional war. And the other consideration is, of course, that the United States is involved in the region insofar as it's trying to restrain Iran. And now that Iranian-Israeli rivalry and that particular axis comes into play here because Iran and Azerbaijan also have not great relationships. There's mutual hostility and suspicion. And the question that I'm interested in, of course, now this conflict in Palestine is adding another even more complicated sort of layer of direction to the issue. But the extent to which the United States will continue to really maybe speak harshly, but not really do much about Azerbaijan is the extent to which it's helping them keep a lid on Iran and Iranian influence in, in the area. So there there are a few different kind of patterns to try to map out here.
2: The only thing I think worth noting here is that, to build on Raphael's point, this tension between Iran and Azerbaijan, Iran is actually home to the largest Azeri population in the world. There are more Azeris living in Iran than there are in Azerbaijan. These people, as far as we can tell, tend to be better integrated into Iranian society than we would otherwise think, right? There's certainly a structurally ethnic Persians Benefit more in the grand scheme of Iranian politics. But the Azeris are far from marginalized, and they have produced a number of major leaders. Azerbaijan has, however, at different moments, and of course with American and likely Israeli backing as well, uh, tried to stoke nationalist sentiment, ethnic sentiments in northern Iran to try and destabilize the regime. Uh, And I think this is where Iran really takes a lot of issue with Azerbaijan, beyond just being regional competitors, beyond uh, the fact that Azerbaijan is basically uh, indistinguishable from Turkey in certain areas uh, right now, which of course has been a regional rival of of Iran for decades. So what we have seen recently is Iranian social media channels have been suggesting that should Azerbaijan launch an invasion of Armenia, which Azerbaijan has been threatening for a couple of different reasons. One, Azerbaijan, part of the, the Russian-brokered ceasefire rather in, in 2020 was to unblock roads between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in order to make it such that they could both be kind of integrated into a Russian economic zone more seamlessly. Azerbaijan has interpreted this as granting them a sovereign corridor through Armenia, that they are calling the Zangizur Corridor. Turkish politicians, including President Erdogan, have been very vocal in demanding this from Armenia. And now that Karabakh has been depopulated, this becomes the next place where you can focus anti-Armenian sentiments in order to distract the population from its own kind of a social and political problems. To that point, as I said, Iran, through its social media channels, has been suggesting that should Azerbaijan try to punch this hole through southern Armenia to connect it with its exclave of of Nakhichevan, which shares a border with Armenia, Iran, and Turkey. If Azerbaijan tries this invasion, that Iran will intervene in order to preserve its border with Armenia, which is a lifeline for Iran, not as much for Iran as it is for Armenia, but is certainly very, very important for Iran, but that they will also do so to defend their regional interests vis-a-vis Turkey and Israel.
0: Were you both surprised by the international reaction to the depopulating or ethnic cleansing of Karabakh I will say I was maybe I'm just naive but I expected since there's so much attention on the region on Ukraine that another tragedy happening in the region would get far more attention and from my estimation it just didn't happen I don't know if you have what your feelings are either of you can start on that
1: I think I was not surprised because, uh, for me at least, that was pretty clearly how things were going to go by 2020 or after the 24-day war, because one of the things that was very clearly stipulated in that agreement mediated by Russia was that Russian peacekeepers would only be in the region for five years, and both of the parties, both Armenia and Azerbaijan, had the capacity after five years to unilaterally call for for the withdrawal of Russian peacekeepers after that period. So already then, it was very clear that Russia did not really intend to be in that role. And one could very easily then see Azerbaijan doing that in 2025, if not sooner. And at that point, then, it became clear that given the way that the Armenian relationship to Azerbaijan has been since the 1990s, and given the kind of dimensions of that 44-day war, there was really no way that Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh would be able to stay there or would want to stay there at that point. I think what I had expected, potentially, and this is something that I was quite worried about, was that the level of bloodshed would be much greater than it even looked if Azerbaijan decided to move into the region full force and take cared. I was very worried about it being almost like a, house to house street battles but given the military asymmetry that had basically existed at that point what we instead had was basically
0: forced ethnic cleansing richard what about your reaction
2: in terms of a popular reaction to it i was unsurprised by its absence if you think about armenia armenia doesn't factor into anyone's geopolitical calculus It's just the sad truth. As I've said in jest to people, Armenia's two main exports, or the two things it can export, are the tufa stone that Rafael mentioned beforehand when discussing Yerevan's architecture, and chess players. There's not a whole lot else there that is going to capture the attention of policymakers in D.C., Brussels, or elsewhere. Moreover, the parts of the American foreign policy establishment that have access to the media or to policymaking circles, they tend to, no matter if they're Democrat, Republican, whatever, they tend to agree on a couple of different things. One, Iran is bad. Two, Russia is bad. And Armenia, by virtue of things beyond its control, is in that neighborhood and has to have relations with those people, whether people in DC or Brussels want it or not. When you have Armenians being subject to violence, it doesn't register. There's there's nothing that people can grab onto and say, this is something we should care about. Uh, I mean, you could say the same thing about Yemen. Yemen probably features a bit more prominently in the geopolitical calculus of DC, but people there are being slaughtered. And there's no coverage of it whatsoever. Even in places that do feature into the geopolitical calculus, Kurds are getting massacred all the time. There's all this war conflict, ethnic cleansing going on, and it just doesn't go anywhere because either the, the population is just not primed to understand what's going on there, uh, primed to hear what's going on there, or for whatever reasons. But for those reasons and others, I, I was completely unsurprised by the lack of coverage.
0: And finally nationalism seems to color domestic politics, international politics and even, you know, looking in social media, the politics of social media is incredibly nationalist in the sense that the focus is on one side or the other. When you can see this with the Ukraine war, you can see this with Armenia Azerbaijan, you can see this with of course the Israel Palestine And also nationalism is a function of a lot of domestic politics, whether it's the United States, Europe, or the former Soviet region. What are your thoughts on this nationalist moment that we're living in? Are we living in a new nationalist moment or has nationalism that is coming out now been sublimated to a large extent by the Cold War and then, of course, the end of the Cold War?
1: Sure. I I have some thoughts. Actually, Richard said something interesting to me the other day, which is that one of the things that we can notice is that obviously there's a kind of greater fracturing of the post Cold War order that's happening since 2011, maybe since 2008. But all of these very legitimate social grievances that have emerged out of the, that triumphal neoliberal global order are now being articulated in a nationalist fashion or in a right or far right fashion. So one of the questions for us is, what does it actually mean to be internationalist in this moment? Given the kind of general disarray of the left on a global scale and kind of the very uneven way, let's say to put it mildly, that liberalism has fared and has handled all of these conflicts. I do want to say something specific that I've also been thinking about in terms of Azerbaijan, because one of the things that we mentioned in our piece is, what is the future of the Aliyev regime? And what is the actual kind of durability or stability of this form of post-Soviet authoritarian rule that has emerged since the 1990s? And for me, it's not at all clear that that regime is actually as stable as it wants to present itself to be. In a way, actually, I feel because Ilham Aliyev inherited his post from his father, Haidar Ali, this is essentially a patrimonial form of rule. And many people have written about this. I like the work of Babu Samadok, who's, I think, a great analyst of contemporary Azerbaijan and other society. But if the regime lacks what we can call an organic ideology, that is an, an ideology that actually links the ruling elites and the kind of different class fractions that they represent to an overall, let's say, national sense of history and ideology and all of the kind of different apparatuses that entails, if it no longer has the Armenian question as that unifying question that it has been since the 1990s, how stable is it, is one question. And the other question is, how much did that emphasis on the Armenian question actually open up a can of worms that will it is not capable of walking back at this point for fear of the losing domestic legitimacy? for for fear of having all of those internal contradictions of declining energy production as the world shifts from fossil fuels to green energy. Social inequality, that is very typical of this kind of very glitzy buildings going up in Baku at the same time as kind of conditions in rural areas are, are for it. If that Armenian question no longer has that kind of unifying role, and, you know, Aliyev is milking it for all he can, just in the way that he's been parading around Stepanakar, a completely empty city just two days ago. Where does then that kind of reap Azerbaijan? And I'll let Richard speak a little bit more about the national question in Armenia and the way that's also mapped onto diasporic
2: politics. From what Rafael was saying, I agree entirely is that we're in this kind of the apex of this neoliberal moment in global history where we have unprecedented wealth inequality in in industrialized societies and people have displaced all social discontent as a result onto the other. And this is why we see, I think, a lot of this hyper-nationalism in different places. I think a lot of what we take to be sectarianism in places like the Middle East with respect to political Islam, et cetera, is obviously just a version of this. Most obviously in Turkey where Erdogan has outflanked the nationalists and usurped their position by blending it together with a kind of Sunni chauvinism, which was actually kind of hardwired into Kemalism from the beginning. We see that happening in Azerbaijan as well, where this has now become a thing. And as a result, we spoke a little bit about the so-called Zangizur Corridor, a more kind of militant version of that has been the very public claims on Armenian territory coming out of not just Azeri social media, but from Azeri officials, Azeri government officials, Azeri state media, making very visible claims on... Armenia, claiming basically in some maps I've seen as much as 80% of the internationally recognized Republic of Armenia. So it's a very dangerous moment because as Rafael was saying, what is the moment at which uh, what may be in fact a very brittle regime such as the Aliyevs? At what point can they actually walk us back? Or do we need to have this kind of perpetual churn of violence in regular cycles in order to have the social discontent dissipate and be channeled into other venues?
0: That was Raphael Hachichurian and Richard Antaramian. Rafael Hachichurian is a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and associate faculty at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. He is the co-editor of the forthcoming Marxism and the Capitalist State towards a new debate, and his trip to Armenia this past summer was funded by the Kalus Golbenkian Foundation. Richard Antaramian is an associate professor of history at the University of Southern California, and together they wrote, Azerbaijan's ethnic cleansing of gorno karabakh is fueled by regional power struggles for the Jacobin. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from PodCuts Editing. You know, Editing your podcast shouldn't be a hassle. It shouldn't take a lot of your time, but it can. And this is why the Eurasian Knot has partnered with Podcuts Editing. Their expertise consistently enhances our quality and streamlines our production process. So if you need some editing or audio services, go to podcutsediting.com and get your first edit completely free. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you, if you like this podcast again, please consider sponsoring us, becoming a patron, so we can continue to pay people like Daniel to make sure everything sounds great for this show. If you can't, you know, chip in a couple of bucks every month. You can help us out immensely by telling your friends and sharing the podcast on social media. This is a big help as well. So until next time, bye.